Wild field and floods, rocks, hills and plains. Repeat the sounding joy. Repeat the sounding joy. Repeat, repeat the sounding joy. Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst, and I'm thrilled that you're listening this morning. I'm just going to start out the show by saying Merry Christmas. Hope you're not offended. And if you are, that's your problem. Merry Christmas. It's crazy how in our society people are so worried about whether or not someone might get offended by something we say or do. Of course, we should be respectful, but in all sincerity, saying Merry Christmas shouldn't be offensive to anyone, even if they're not a Christian. You know, I have friends from other cultures and other societies. I have Muslim friends, for example, that'll wish me Merry Christmas. It's not offensive to them to wish me Merry Christmas, and I'll do the same for them on their holidays because I love them as people. And if one of them happens to tell me Happy Hanukkah or something like that, of course, not talking about Muslim friends, but maybe Jewish friends, I wouldn't be offended by that. I would take it as a pleasant compliment from a real friend. It's crazy how something intended to be a compliment can be seen by some to be offensive. And if it is offensive, we got to have good boundaries and realize that my words shouldn't be taken necessarily as an offensive thing, especially if they're kind words. And if somebody's offended by them, they should really consider why they were so easily offended. So as we think about the politically correct atmosphere of current America, I think it's important to remember that freedom of speech trumps political correctness, and we should be quick to say Merry Christmas this time of year. That being said, we're going to talk about Christmas. It's just a couple weeks away, and we're going to talk about why we can celebrate Christmas with confidence that it was a historical reality, not a myth as the American atheists would have us believe. You've probably heard of the American atheist billboards that have a picture of the nativity and say, you know, it's a myth. Well, we know they are the mythicists. Recently, one of the biggest critics of the Bible and one of the biggest critics of Christianity in the New Testament wrote a book about whether or not Jesus really lived. And in that book, he is an expert in this field. You shouldn't believe that because he's an expert in this field, he's right. There are many more experts that don't agree with his conclusions. But he would say that even these atheists are crazy. In fact, he'd call them mythicists. The biggest critic of the New Testament today, probably the most prolific, would say that if you don't believe in the historical reality of Jesus Christ, you're a mythicist. In other words, American atheists with your myth billboards, you're the real mythicists out in the culture today. We're going to talk about some of the historical evidence for Jesus Christ. We're going to talk about some other factors that should be considered when we evaluate the historicity of the first Christmas. And we're going to discuss what Christmas is all about. It'll be a great show, and I hope you get a lot out of it. So Merry Christmas as we start out the show. I hope you enjoy the rest of this Christmas show. Well, next week we'll go into it more, but this week we're going to start on the Christmas story. Matthew 1, 18 through 25 says, This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. 
His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Let's read it in Luke also, Luke 1, 1 through 20. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what they had been told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at all the shepherds told them about this child. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen which were just as they had been told. As stated in these passages, these events had been foretold by the Old Testament prophets. One reason that the American atheists are wrong is biblical prophecy. We know from fulfilled prophecy that these events were accurate and that they were ordained by God. And the Bible is the only religious text, in fact, the only text in all of existence that makes so many accurate prophecies. About a thousand have been fulfilled. More will be fulfilled in the future. There are over a hundred messianic prophecies that were fulfilled in Christ. Some would say up to 300. I'm going to share just a few of the messianic prophecies today. I've shared more on these. You can get those shows at godsolutionshow.com. But here are just a few, and then we're going to focus on a few that are particularly relevant to the Christmas story. A few that aren't so specific to the Christmas story, the fact that Jesus would teach in parables, 
The fact that he would perform miracles, his betrayal for 30 pieces of silver, his crucifixion, the fact that he would have no broken bones in his death, the fact that he would die along sinners, the fact that soldiers would cast lots for his clothing, the fact that he would be buried in a rich man's tomb, his resurrection, and even his resurrection on the third day were all prophesied hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus walked this earth. Additionally, concerning his birth and the time before and shortly after that, we read beforehand, prophetically, that the Messiah would be a descendant of David, that he would be of the tribe of Judah. We read in Daniel 9 of the exact time of his arrival, the fact that he would be preceded by John the Baptist, that he would be born in Bethlehem, and that he would be born of a virgin, are all prophesied. As we talk about his virgin birth, I want to discuss the issue of miracles here, because it always comes up from the atheist. How can you believe in miracles, the atheist would say. David Hume, of course, and we've said it on this show, would say if something is not true by definition or empirically verifiable, you must commit it to the flames. Others were quick to realize that that statement is neither true by definition nor empirically verifiable, and the statement itself should be committed to the flames. The reality is that the naturalist cannot discount the supernatural. There's no way for them to do that. Beyond that, if ever there has been one miracle which could be accepted, then it would be impossible for the naturalist or atheist to say that miracles aren't possible. We know that the resurrection is historically verified, and that's just one example of one miracle. And if that miracle happened, and again, we have good historical evidence that it did, then the atheist cannot write off miracles. They cannot say that we cannot believe that the virgin birth occurred because it's miraculous. I would encourage you to read Craig Keener's volume called Miracles for a scholarly analysis of thousands of miracles, both historical and modern. It's a great study, and I would suggest you get it. That being said, we can accept that miracles are possible, and we can't just write off the virgin birth as a miracle just for being a miracle. It was prophesied, and we have all the historical evidence in the world of Christ's life, death, and resurrection that would support the fact that he was also born. And we can trust what Scripture says about his birth. Additionally, Herod's slaughter of the innocents was prophesied, and Jesus' time in Egypt, which was a reaction to Herod's slaughter of the innocents, was also prophesied in Scripture. I've just mentioned numerous prophecies concerning the Christmas story, and even more concerning Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and there are still even more that I could not share in this short time. The bottom line that I think we need to take away from this is I can trust that the Christmas story is accurate because it had been foretold by so many different prophets for so many years before Christ was born. Now, not only do we have the prophecy leading up to Christ's birth, but we also have the biblical account, and other historical accounts. I'm going to keep them separate just to patronize the critic a bit here. So why should I trust the Bible? Well, let's consider the criteria of canonization. Antiquity, all these books in the Bible, the New Testament Gospels per se, go back to the earliest eyewitness time period. So we know that they aren't myth, that myth did not develop ecclesiastical usage, they were all used in the church from the very beginning, and they were universally applicable. No other Gospels were. The four Gospels that we have always traveled together, if they were together, they never traveled with any of the later Gospels, like the Gnostic Gospels, which came 100 plus years later and after the fact 
that weren't from the eyewitness time period like the Gospels were. They had doctrinal integrity. The Gospels and the historical accounts of Christ's birth, life, death, resurrection. I say the Gospels and other accounts because there are other accounts in Scripture. For example, 1 Corinthians 15. All these were doctrinally sound. And they didn't include crazy concepts. Like, for example, the Gospel of Thomas. We know came many, many years after Christ's life on this earth. And had crazy mythical accounts, like Jesus telling women that they had to become men before they could be saved. So we know that it was off base in many different ways. Finally, the Gospels and all the other New Testament historical accounts of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, and his birth, had apostolic connection. Matthew was one of Jesus' disciples, an eyewitness to these very things. Mark was a disciple of Peter, an eyewitness to these very things. Luke compiled his gospel from his interview with eyewitnesses of these very things. And John was a disciple of Jesus, the closest disciple of Jesus, who provides for us another eyewitness account. Paul, who wrote 1 Corinthians, which I just mentioned, has one of the earliest references to the historicity of Jesus Christ in chapter 15. And many other aspects of his writings include historically valid descriptions of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. Paul was an eyewitness of Christ in one sense after his resurrection, and he also had numerous opportunities to talk with other eyewitnesses, namely the disciples. We know from Galatians that he went up to Jerusalem and talked with Peter and James and others. So we know that the apostolic connection of the biblical accounts is valid. So we're dealing with, in the Bible, eyewitness accounts that are actually valid. They're not crazy. Uh, that the church accepted them from the very beginning, and they go back to the very beginning. Because of those things, we know that what we have in Scripture is historically valid. Additionally, we know it's not screwed up. This eyewitness testimony preserved in Scripture is also preserved through a plethora of documents. We have nearly 6,000 Greek manuscripts, nearly 18,000 additional translations from those, and tens of thousands of quotations from the early church fathers. In fact, just those quotations alone could reconstitute the entire New Testament minus 11 verses. So we have this wealth of documentary evidence for what was originally written in the Gospels and in the other aspects of the New Testament and the other parts of the New Testament that describe Jesus' birth life, death, and resurrection. So we know that we actually have valid eyewitness testimony preserved in Scripture, unadulterated. We can trust it. Now, what about the critic who would say, oh, you can't trust the Bible? Well, let's look at other historical sources outside of the Bible. The Bible does account for all those things, but just to patronize the critic, we have overwhelming extra-biblical evidence as well. Carm.org slash Jesus-exist gives the following list of historical accounts of Christ, and these are accepted across the board. Ryan Turner of Carm gives the following list. There are over 42 sources within 150 years of Jesus' life and death which mention his existence and record many events of his life. There are nine traditional New Testament authors that describe these historical events. These include Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, the author of Hebrews, James, Peter, and Jude. 
Additionally, there are 20 early Christian writers outside of the New Testament that give historical corroboration to the historicity of Christ's birth, life, death, and resurrection. There are four heretical writings, the Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Truth, Apocryphon of John, and Treatise on Resurrection. Of course, those are heretical, yet they do provide the corroboration of Jesus' life in the first place and that it's a historical event. There are also nine secular sources, including Josephus, Tacitus, Pliny the Younger, Phlegon, Lucian, Celsus, Marabar Serapion, Suetonius, and Thallus. We'll talk about those and some others in a minute. The idea that Christ is not a historical figure is itself a myth. Again, as the biggest critic of the Bible would say, people that don't accept Jesus's historical existence are themselves the mythicists. The history is convincing. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution on KDUR 91.9 and 93.9 FM in Durango and KDUR.org online. Thank you so much for listening. Merry Christmas. We're talking about some of the reasons that we can accept the biblical account of Christ's birth as we celebrate his birth this Christmas. We're going to talk about some of the extra biblical accounts of this right now. The gospel accounts for many of these different historical reasons to believe in Jesus' birth and what we celebrate at Christmas, his life, death, and resurrection as well. But there are even more references to him historically that exist outside of Scripture. And this is fascinating. The Babylonian Talmud preserves Jesus' arrest warrant, saying Jesus was to be stoned for practicing sorcery. We know that he was really practicing miracles. And for leading Israel astray. For example, he called himself equal with God. The Babylonian Talmud contains two other probable references to Christ, saying, Woe to him who makes himself alive by the name of God, which is interesting corroboration from a critical and hostile source of the resurrection. And he went and raised Jesus by incantation. Again, positive evidence from a hostile source, as it's been said. Josephus, a Jewish historian, notes, Now there arose at this time a source of further trouble, and one Jesus, a wise man who performed surprising works, a teacher of men who gladly welcomed strange things. He led away many Jews and also many of the Gentiles. He was the so-called Christ. When Pilate, acting on information supplied by the chief men around us, condemned him to the cross, those who had attached themselves to him at first did not cease to cause trouble. And the tribe of Christians, which has taken this name from him, is not extinct even today. So he assembled the Sanhedrin of the judges and brought before them the brother of Jesus, who was called Christ, whose name was James, and some others. And when he had formed an accusation against them as breakers of the law, he delivered them to be stoned. Tacitus, a Roman historian, says, Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty, crucifixion, during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out, not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. Again, historical evidence of Christ's life. Pliny the Younger, a Roman politician, described Christians worshiping Christ as to a god. Lucian, a Greek satirist, 
wrote a satire describing Christians who worshipped the leader of a cult who was impaled in Palestine and lived under his rules. Celsus, a Roman philosopher refuted by Origen, says Jesus was born out of wedlock and learned magical powers in Egypt by which he panned himself off as a god. Obviously, he was critical of Christ, but he corroborates a few things of Christ's existence. The fact that he was born of a virgin and performed miracles. These things Celsus tried to provide a polemic against, but in so doing, confirmed the reality of those things. Marabar Serapion was a man writing to his son who said, For what advantage did the Jews gain by the death of their wise king? He then connects that to the destruction of Jerusalem, confirming again Jesus' death in Jerusalem. Suetonius is another extra-biblical historical account. And then we have Julius Africanus quoting two other historical accounts from Thallus and Phlegon. He wrote, On the whole world there pressed a most fearful darkness, corroborating again the biblical account of the darkness that came after Christ's crucifixion. And the rocks were rent by an earthquake, and many places in Judea and other districts were thrown down. This darkness, Thallus, in the third book of his history calls, as appears to me without reason, an eclipse of the sun. Phlegon records that in the time of Tiberius Caesar, at full moon, there was a full eclipse of the sun from the sixth hour to the ninth manifestly that one of which we speak. The evidence for Christ's life, death, and resurrection is overwhelming, even from extra-biblical sources, and we can trust that he really was a historical figure and that what we celebrate this Christmas is historically valid. So when was Jesus born? Well, we think he was probably born in around 5 B.C. Josephus wrote that Herod died in 4 B.C., and Jesus likely was born between 7 and 4 B.C. Scholars think 5 B.C. is the most likely of those. He also likely died in AD 33 because that was the only date that Nisan 14, the Passover, fell on a Thursday, the day before his crucifixion on Friday. Only possibilities other than that could have been AD 30, although that doesn't allow enough time for his ministry. So we can say confidently that he was born around 5 B.C., that he died in AD 33. History, again, corroborates his life ministry, death, and resurrection. And of course, if he lived, ministered, died, and rose again, he was born, which is what we celebrate this Christmas. So when was he born? Was he born on December 25th? Well, who knows? Scripture doesn't say, and it doesn't really matter. According to the Cradle, the Cross, and the Crown, Jesus' birth occurred between the latter half of 7 BC and the beginning of 4 BC, like I just mentioned. According to the tradition of the church, Jesus was born in the winter. It's doubtful that it was on the 25th. Some have connected the Christian celebration of Christ's birth with the pagan holiday of that same time, the pagan holiday of the Roman pagan sun god. Chrysostom seems to corroborate that, or at least mention that. Even if the Christians chose to celebrate it at the same time as another common celebration, that would not be a problem. For example... My brother, whom I love dearly, was adopted from Colombia, and we didn't have his actual birth certificate. He was born on the streets of Bogota. We didn't know his actual birthday, so he was assigned a birthday when we adopted him. His birthday was assigned February 16th. That doesn't make his life or existence any less real, and we celebrate with joy his birth on that day. Whether or not he was actually born on February 16th is a different question. The reality is, it's as good a day as any to celebrate how much we love him. It's the same for Christmas. We can really celebrate Christ's birthday with lots of joy 
because he really was born. He really did live. He really did do things nobody ever has done. He really did teach us the only way to God and salvation. He did die on the cross, and he did rise again, proving he's the only one in the history of this world with the power to conquer death. That's worth celebrating. And frankly, I don't care what day we celebrate it. We should celebrate it every day. And December 25th is as good a day as any to celebrate Christmas. Also, the authors of The Cradle, The Cross, and The Crown write, none of the New Testament data is inconsistent with a midwinter date. So it's not like it's impossible that it was December 25th. The celebration date is irrelevant. What matters is what we are celebrating. And that is what's so important to end this show on. C.S. Lewis stated that Jesus was either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord and God. And the evidence supports the latter, right? If you think he was a good teacher, if you think he was a good man, then he obviously wasn't a liar or a lunatic. The only other option is that he was telling the truth and that he was Lord and God and that he could truly save you and give you eternal life. The fulfilled prophecies that we mentioned today are evidence that God alone inspired his word and that Jesus was God in human flesh, as stated in Isaiah 7.14 and Matthew 1.23. Emmanuel, God with us. That's sufficient evidence for the trustworthiness of the Christmas story, as far as I'm concerned. Additionally, though, we have the historical evidence and the historical reality of Jesus' life, ministry, death, and resurrection, which we find in Scripture, which is historically valid, and even in extra-biblical accounts as well. The most prolific critic of the Bible, again, would call those who disagree with Christ's historical reality and existence, he would call them mythicists. So I have to mention it yet again. American atheists who believe that Christmas is just a myth, they, it turns out, are the true mythicists. So what does it all mean? The reason Jesus came and lived among us was to save us from our sins. We read that in those passages this morning that we read. See, the Bible says God loves you with an infinite, everlasting love. Nothing you've ever done has caused him to stop loving you. Yet, there's a problem. The Bible says you and I are very sinful and that we're selfish. That doesn't mean that you're worse than the other guy. What it means is that all people, regardless of how they compare to each other, fall short of who God is. He is perfect. No person is perfect. He is loving. No person is perfectly loving. He is selfless. We are selfish. If I look around the world, if I turn on the news, I find that that is exactly what we see. It is true. The reality is that we are sinful. And in our sinful state, we cannot be with God because he's perfect. That presents a big problem. We are all eternal beings. And if we cannot be with God, then we will have to be separate from God. That is the condition that the Bible calls hell, an eternal state of being separate from God, full of torment, pain, and grief. The Bible says that God desires that no one would perish in hell, and he wants all to be saved. And for that very reason, he became a man and dwelt among us. Again, Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus, God in human flesh, he lived a perfect life that I could never live. And then he died to satisfy the penalty that I deserved, to pay for it so that I would not have to. Now I actually have to do something about that, though. I have to decide whether or not I'll receive his payment for my sins or not. I would encourage you this morning to begin a relationship with Christ 
through faith to say, Jesus, I ask you to forgive my sins. I believe that you are who you say you are. And I believe that you rose from the dead to conquer death for me. I ask you today to be my Savior and Lord, to come into my life to make me the kind of person that you want me to be. As you voice that prayer towards God, putting your faith and trust in him, the Bible says you'll be adopted into his family. And I can't think of a better way to celebrate Christmas. If you haven't taken that step, I hope you'll take it this morning. I would encourage you to visit GodSolutionShow.com to see a list of local churches that you could visit this morning. And I would also like to ask you to visit GodSolutionShow.com to let me know what you think of the show and to leave any comments or any questions you'd like me to deal with on the show. Remember, an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. I hope you remember that as you celebrate the real reason for the season, Jesus, this year. Merry Christmas and have a wonderful Sunday afternoon. So-